And that was the weekend where it really did start to hit home that this was a problem. I was feeling physically terrible. I was waking up every morning hungover, shaky, heart racing, and telling myself I wasn't going to do it again. I usually would drink all the wine in the house the night before so that I wouldn't have any more alcohol the next day so I could start over the next day. So I would quit and then I would pick it back up maybe 12 hours later, if even that long. And so Labor Day weekend, I drank the entire weekend by myself at my house. And that Monday evening, I remember being on the phone with my best friend. I called her late that night and I was sobbing. I was a mess and I knew I needed help. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 161. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. I know I spent my whole life trying to be perfect, perfect at work, perfect at home, perfect mother, perfect wife, perfect everything. And one of the things I have learned is good enough is okay. We are human. We're not perfect. And that really is one of the most important things that I've learned. I do my best and, you know, I'm older now. I'm not as perfect as I used to be. Um, I do make mistakes and that's okay. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest this week is Lily Shanks. Lily describes herself as a recovering attorney. She's in recovery from working for a big law firm and also from alcohol. After graduating from a top-tier law school, Lily practiced commercial litigation in a big law firm. But although she was able to indulge her passion for expensive cars and shoes, the stress caught up with her and it resulted in a daily wine habit. So eventually Lily got sober and left her corporate job. She trained as a coach and these days she specialises in recovery and relationship coaching. I began our conversation by asking Lily to introduce herself. Thank you, Janet, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. 
My name is Lily Shanks. I live in Dallas, Texas, and I describe myself in part as a recovering attorney. I've been licensed to practice law and practiced commercial litigation, so business lawsuits. And I have added on to that degree as far as becoming a registered yoga teacher back in 2011, and most recently adding an official life coaching certification. I live in Dallas with my two beautiful rescue dogs, and I'm now working full time as a coach and loving it. Fantastic. That's that's a rather interesting evolution, isn't it? Because we always see attorneys with very big brains, which I'm sure you've got, got very serious and very corporate. And here you are doing yoga, a bit of coaching. So it's very interesting. Hence the recovering attorney title that I've dubbed myself. Yeah, I love it. I'm not just in it. recovery from my drinking career, which was quite prodigious. <laughs> It's a recovering attorney for me connotes a certain changing of mindset, which has been necessary for me to create a happier, more fulfilling life. Yeah, well, I I had a long corporate career and I would say I'm also in recovery from that. There are quite a few of us out there. It's been fascinating to make those connections with with others who have... lifestyle. In my case, it was very much work hard, play hard. That lifestyle gets us into this alcohol dependency very often, doesn't it? Absolutely. We're all or nothing people. So we do all the work and then we drink all the wine afterwards. Exactly. That was my motto, go big or go home. And so that black and white thinking, that very extremist point of view has had to change. Yeah. So let's dive into the the drinking story, shall we, that you described as prodigious and prolific. (laughs) (laughs) When did it all start, Lily? When did you start drinking? How old were you? I couldn't tell you the exact age I was when I took my first drink, Janet, but it was before I got to high school. And I'm always fascinated by people I meet in sobriety who say, I remember this exact time when I had my first drink. And I don't have that memory, but I do remember very clearly being at my good friend's house. We were in our early teens, if not a little bit before that. And her father had these fancy crystal decanters in this bar area filled with these exotic looking brown liquors that one, smelled bad, two, tasted bad. So if I was going to pour myself a little something out of that decanter, I would water it down with soda or something else. And of course, try to top off the decanter with water because surely he never noticed that. I don't know. And it didn't taste good. It didn't smell good. And it burned. But I knew that it was going to change the way I felt. And I didn't get drunk that first time because it smelled so bad. But once I found the things like the super fruity wine coolers that were really popular back when I was starting to kick off my drinking career, those were great. I would drink lots of those. I would drink all of them. And so I pretty quickly became a binge drinker in my young age because I didn't have access to alcohol all the time. There was alcohol in the house, but I wasn't a daily drinker until I got into my 20s and was on my own and making some money. But in my teens, I had always felt shy and awkward And I didn't want to feel that way. I wanted to be one of the outgoing, popular girls who 
was flirty and cute with the boys and just very sure of herself. And that was not me. And so alcohol gave me that liquid courage. It took that edge off. It was that social lubricant that I thought I needed. It was. It gave me that err. And that's Mm -hmm. what I really love. From the time I started in my teens, let's say, until my later 30s when I finally got sober... It gave me that err. It made me feel, or I thought it made me feel, smarter, sassier, prettier, funnier. I thought I was a better dancer when I was drinking. I was definitely more likely to talk to the guys or take my shirt off, right? So it really loosened my natural inhibitions. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to feel different. I wanted to be a different person instead of the awkward pale redhead with the crooked teeth who was not always comfortable in her own skin. Yeah, it's like a a magic potion, isn't it? When I think about it, I don't think I've ever met a teenager that's comfortable in their own skin. (laughs) It's part of us being teenagers, isn't it? Exactly. And that's that's part of that stage. But I didn't didn't know that. No, no, you think it's, well, it's just me. Everybody else is totally relaxed. Yeah, how did they get the instructions on how to be cute and flirt (laughs) and do all those things? And I missed out. I didn't know. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So did I see somewhere, Lily, that there was alcoholism in your family? There is alcoholism in my family, Although I didn't grow up in the typical alcoholic household. Neither of my parents are alcoholics. Although I did grow up with the belief, right or wrong, some of the beliefs that I developed early on as a child before I was able to really examine them definitely played a part in my alcoholic thinking later in my life. Starting a little earlier than that first drink, I'm the only child of older parents. My parents had me later in their lives, and I took on the burden or felt like I should be perfect, and I had to do everything right, and that I should be independent and not ask for help and have the right answers. And I also took on these beliefs, not necessarily because my parents put them on me. These were just things that I assumed or that I developed on my own. I took on these beliefs and I ran with them, and it created a really lonely feeling underneath it all. If I have to be perfect and I can't ask for help, then I was totally reliant on myself, and I felt embarrassed if I got the answer wrong in my classroom. And I felt ashamed if I got a B on my report card. And I was typically an all-A student, so that didn't really happen. But there was that underlying fear that I wouldn't get it right, that I wouldn't be the top. And so those are some factors that I've had to examine, but also unlearn. And That loneliness is something that continued throughout my life until I really got into recovery and started to learn how to to better connect with people. 
as an only yeah. child, I always wished I had a sibling. And I've always treasured my friendships and my connections. And I know I've heard it. Many people have said it. And I do believe that connection is one of the main antidotes to addiction. Yeah. And the recovery community is amazing, isn't it? You meet other people that have been through this and you just feel like you know them. It sounds like you, you put a lot of pressure on yourself when you were growing up. You just wanted to be perfect as if anybody can ever be perfect. I, I don't know. Pressure for a little girl. I don't know what perfection <laughs> is. In fact, I, I call it the P word today. And it's, yeah. you know, kind of a bad word for me. Yeah. Because it's like normal, isn't it? It's like normal drinkers. I mean, what are they? <laughs> I don't understand them. And I don't know what normal really means. One of my friends no. has told me that normal is a cycle on your washing machine. And that's it. <laughs> As far as nice it applies one, yeah. to behavior, I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that, that drive for perfection, it it served me. I did do well yes. in school. I went to college. I went to law school. And I did well. And I was hired into this big firm where I was making a lot of money. And I was constantly chasing that next elusive thing or that next box that I thought I should be checking. And so sometimes that involved buying the new car, even though my car was still in perfectly good condition. It was buying the really fancy shoes, and I have quite a few of those in my closet (laughs) that aren't going worn. And so I was chasing that thing outside of myself that I thought would make me feel internally better, just like alcohol. I thought alcohol helped. And maybe it did give that sense of relief or comfort or ease at that first sip or that first drink, but then it was gone. It was so elusive. And I was constantly thinking that if I just drink more, if I continue to drink more and more, then I'll get that back. I'll feel better. And ultimately, of course, alcohol being a depressant and poisonous, I always felt worse. But I didn't know. Of course. I didn't know. I didn't connect as smart as I was. I didn't realize yeah, yeah. how problematic it was <laughs> because it was it was yeah. the normal thing. It was glamorous and fun yeah. and cool. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. Yeah, it's almost an extension of what you know, when you were in your twenties in your law firm earning lots of money and getting a bigger car, more shoes, etc. That's how society has been set up, really, hasn't it? We're all addicted to chasing happiness. And to us ladies in our corporate jobs, happiness seems like a new pair of shoes or a bigger car or something. But we're, we're so off track because we never actually get there, do we? And it's almost as if we have to go through this um, fire and, and go through recovery. And then we start to understand who we really are, what we really want out of life. And it's actually not another pair of shoes. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) It is surprising at first. And it takes what it takes, I think, for us to get to that realization. For me, it took quite a while. Janet, I was maybe five years into my legal career when I was recognizing already that there was a misalignment with my soul and what I was doing. Yeah. And of course, I didn't recognize that it was the alcohol because I thought the alcohol was helpful. 
And I didn't recognize that the shoes and the car weren't really making me feel better. It wasn't that financial Mm -hmm. happiness or validation that I was seeking. And so I left my big firm job and took a year-long hiatus where I got my 500-hour teaching certification. I taught full-time at a few studios here in Dallas, and I loved it. And that was my first real venture into true service work because I was drawn to yoga because it had been so helpful to me when I was so stressed out and not sure what to do. It reconnected me with with my body and how I was really feeling physically, at least. Yeah. And so it was such a wonderful feeling. It was so fulfilling to be able to share that gift, share that practice with the students and the members at the studios. But then the money, the chase of the external started to catch up with Mm. me. And so I went back to practicing law. Were you in your 20s when you took that? first year break or was it a bit later on? That was right when I turned 30. I entered teacher training a few months later. So you had a year doing that, you loved it and then were you going broke? Did you have to go back to work? I had some... You just, you missed the finer things of life. I did. I still, I had champagne taste, literally, on a <laughs> beer budget. On yoga money. <laughs> <laughs> on yoga money. And I did have a lot of financial challenges that year. And wouldn't you know, even if my lights got turned off or the bills were past due... I still found the money to buy wine or whatever oh, it was because always. that was a priority. Yes. I really had I yes. really had things in, yeah. in order. So yes, there was the financial need that took me yes, back. Yes, because no doubt you'd got a certain lifestyle when you when you first practiced in law which entailed bills. You probably had a nice apartment and all the bills that come with it. So we can't move away from that quite so easily we'll always need somewhere to live so it's not quite so easy so did you get into that loop where you would work really hard all day and then get home open a bottle of wine on your own and uh, use it to self-medicate the stress really it's like we've met (laughs) it's like we've lived (laughs) the same life yes I (laughs) although I have to correct you on the worked really hard because there were some days when I worked really hard and there were other days, especially at the end where I just, I struggled to get out of bed and make it into the office. I was constantly hungover. I was physically miserable, especially towards the end. For a while, I was able to keep going and push and work really hard. And did your colleagues know something was up, do you think? Or were you very good at hiding the hangovers? I think... Or maybe they had them too. I don't know. I think some of them caught on or had an inkling, especially if I showed up at the firm holiday party and got a little too drunk on the open bar there. I was that person. But nobody said anything explicitly to me about thinking that I might have a problem drinking. And I've even had conversations with former colleagues from law firms who expressed surprise that I was in recovery and that I had had this drinking problem. 
I've even talked to a man that I dated while I was pretty active in my drinking, and he didn't realize it was problematic because I would be better at controlling myself when I was around. We get good at that, don't we? Yes. Yes. And so those, those external factors were things that did keep me in check to a certain extent until they couldn't anymore. And I was just out of control. But I did a lot of, a lot of drinking at home on the sofa all by myself. So when did you start to accept that there was a real problem here and Lily would have to get her act together? I think that ideas started to sink in really and truly in 2018. And my sobriety birthday is Labor Day 2018. So it took me another nine months of really hard, intentional, very determined drinking to drink myself out of my drinking career. And I remember at the beginning of 2018, I would actually take it kind of easy on New Year's Eve because I thought that all the people who went out and got drunk on New Year's Eve were lightweights. They were drinking that night the way I drank most nights. And so I would I, I would still drink, but I would drink a little less on New Year's Eve just so I could be a little bit less hungover on New Year's Day. But I said I was going to do a dry January in 2018. It wasn't because I thought I had a problem with drinking. At least I didn't recognize it then. Maybe there was that underlying concern, but I tried dry January with the knowledge that I would go back to drinking, that that would be my reward. I didn't make it the entire dry January. I had a few days where I... How far did you get? I couldn't tell you. Janet, I didn't keep track of it. I wasn't taking it that seriously. And drinking was what I knew. And so even though I would get a few days without drinking and I would feel better, I would be better focused. It was easier for me to complete that project that I needed to turn in. I always knew that I would go back to drinking because that's just how I assumed my life would go. I thought it was, I still thought it was glamorous to take a trip to Napa and be buzzed the entire time. I couldn't imagine going on dates or doing all of these things that I did drinking because daily drinking was part of my life. I drank before I went out to dinner and I always drank when I came home for the evening, even if I'd been out with friends, even if I'd been out on a a date and had a few drinks, I would come home and I would inevitably drink more when I was back in my space and I could do what I wanted to do the way I wanted to do it. Yeah. Then you can really relax and drink. Exactly. (laughs) All control, all attempts at control, if I was at home by myself, were gone. Although there are some ways I tried to moderate. I tried to keep track of the number of drinks I was having. The rules. The rules. We call them. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I tried to impose some drinking rules on myself. And so one of them was I was going to make a mark for every glass of wine I consumed. Of course, there were a couple of problems inherent in that plan because one, I didn't have the magic number where I was going to stop. And two, once I had two drinks, three, 
it was over. I was going to keep going until I... No off switch. No off switch. I must tell you about my dry Januarys because I used to do them every year religiously and I used to drink lots during December to get get ready, (laughs) lots more. And then in February, wow, it was a February was a party. And now when I look back, I realise I was just white knuckling through that month. And it's counterproductive, really. What we both know now that it's all about mindset. When you white knuckle like that, your subconscious is just recognising that sobriety is miserable and it's not something you want to do (laughs) because you're just staggering through January waiting for February. But because I used to manage that white knuckling it, I used to say, well, I obviously don't have a problem with alcohol because I can stop for a month. So I was able to fool myself for another few years (laughs) by dry January. So uh, yeah, Yeah, very You you had the willpower and the determination for those 30 days. But it's not about willpower, is it? It's about a mind shift. It's about limiting beliefs. And we'll talk more about Mm -hmm. that, I'm sure. Did you have a rock bottom? I had a rock bottom. I had so many moments, though, that could have been the rock bottom. But my rock bottom was Labor Day weekend 2018. And I'd been drinking really heavily the preceding months. And honestly, the years leading up to that weekend. I had made a total fool of myself on a girl's wine weekend a week or two before that down in Fredericksburg, which is this little town in uh, West Texas in the Hill Country area where they have a lot of small vineyards. And it's a fun place to go for normal people, especially, I think, because they can go and taste a little wine and have a little weekend away. And for me, it was just on. I was drunk the entire weekend. And I was with a very good friend of mine, as well as some other ladies. And I was just a mess. I was so embarrassed. And that was the weekend where it really did start to hit home that this was a problem. I was feeling physically terrible. I was waking up every morning hungover, shaky, heart racing, and telling myself I wasn't going to do it again. I usually would drink all the wine in the house the night before so that I wouldn't have any more alcohol the next day so I could start over the next day. So I would quit and then I would pick it back up maybe 12 hours later, if even that long. And so Labor Day weekend, I drank the entire weekend by myself at my house And that Monday evening, I remember being on the phone with my best friend. I called her late that night and I was sobbing. I was a mess and I knew I needed help. And so she helped me make a plan for the next day. And I actually followed through on it. I called the office and said I needed some time, some time away from a health, for a health uh, concern And I got on the phone and I had a lot of firsts that first 24 hours of my sobriety because I was being honest with people. I was honest with my doctors for the first time. I had been seeing a therapist, but I'd never been totally honest with her about how much I was drinking. They were all so lovely and so helpful and gave me guidance and 
I followed through with it. And so I was asking for help and being honest and willing to do something different. Well done. Can I just ask you before we leave those drinking years and move into recovery? Did you have blackouts? Oh, yes, Janet. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just checking it wasn't just me. No, so many blackouts. I have had the very surreal and mortifying experience of seeing myself towards the end on my ring camera recording from the night before coming home with someone that I'd met in a bar at 2 a.m., And seeing myself swaying and hearing myself slurring my words and seeing how drunk I was. And I didn't remember that conversation. I didn't remember walking to the door. I didn't remember so much of that night. And that's just one example where I actually had the opportunity, if you will, to relive it and to be mortified And I had several others like that where I woke up the next morning and I didn't remember, but the camera had caught it. And so those were some of the factors leading up to that final weekend where I'd seen, oh, I can't believe. And it's a miracle that I wasn't assaulted. I wasn't robbed. It's a miracle I didn't die because I was a drinker and a driver. I put myself in all kinds of dangerous situations and... I'm not proud of those things, but I share those because I'm not ashamed of them anymore. That was part of me and my active alcoholism, and I'm in recovery from it. Yeah, blackouts. My rock bottom was a blackout. It was a six-hour walking, talking blackout. What are we doing? We're playing with our, our lives, aren't we? So seriously, I don't think we had any idea. That's part of the reasons why I do this work. I want people to be informed. You know, we need to know. Yes, I think your podcast and all of the information that's now available online, and especially the term sober curious and some of that gray area drinking that's more talked about today is tremendously helpful. But honestly, I, I heard that alcohol could be dangerous. I heard from my doctor that it was that it could be damaging to me. I remember one of my doctors because I wasn't feeling better even after he had prescribed something for me. He had me go to a lab to run a panel so he could look at all my numbers and my liver numbers at that time had become elevated. But I was so staunchly in denial that I was not prepared, at least then at that time, to be honest with him because I was protecting that part of my life. And so I knew that I was in denial. I was delusional. And I just thought, well, this is... This is my life. This is how I'm going to live. Because uh, you you were petrified of him saying you can't drink anymore. We, we're just in fear of losing it, aren't we? Mm-hmm. 
what I, I know these days, what, which I didn't know for a long, long time, was it's much easier just to give up than to try and moderate and control it. Because once we've crossed over that line into dependence, we'll never be able to control it, however hard we try. But if we can just ditch the stuff and then start changing our lives in other ways, it's, um, it's much easier. In our experience, we find that it takes people about six months to really change the habits and then another few months to learn to navigate our alcohol-drenched society. Mm -hmm. And then they're through it. It doesn't have to be a lifetime struggle. But yeah, going back to what you were saying about the recovery landscapes, it's changed so much in the last decade. I mean, I got sober seven years ago and here in South Africa, the only place to go was AA. I hated that. It didn't suit me. And that's part of the reason why I set something up myself eventually. But AA isn't for everybody. But these days, there's so many pathways, aren't there? And there's so much online and so many young people. I've just interviewed a young lady for the podcast that got sober at 24. <laughs> I mean, her drinking career was very short, but it was very intense. So it was so obvious from the, her first drink at the age of 14 that she couldn't go this route. She got sober at, at 24 and now she's, you know, one of these influencers that you see on Instagram. And I think it's wonderful, you know, that more and more people are getting sober curious and doing something at a young age. Absolutely. So that was just the start of my so, thinking career <laughs> at 24. Well, me too. Gosh, 24 was just warming exactly. up. Exactly. <laughs> that was a warm up lap. So... You, you started telling the truth on the days that the, those early days of sobriety. So you had your therapist, your doctor. What other tools did you use? How, how, did, you, how did you do it? Did you go to AA or go join a group or something? I did. I did not want to go to AA or any 12-step meetings when I hit bottom. And my doctor recommended because I had been seeing him under the guise of, and honestly for, a disordered eating pattern that I'd had for a very long time. And of course, I believe everything's connected. That was one of the ways that I was sabotaging myself and I was not loving myself and I was standing in my way. And so he said, well, let's send you to this treatment program that specializes in disordered eating, and surely they'll have some sort of supplemental substance abuse, alcohol abuse track that will be helpful to you. And he said, and if they don't, or if you need something in addition for your drinking, then you can go to AA or Smart Recovery and rattled off a list of other alternatives and communities for alcohol dependence. And I said, well, I'm not going to AA because I don't want to hear about God, but let's just see how it goes. And so I went to treatment and at the program that I was attending for disordered eating, they didn't give me any tools specific to my drinking. And so while I hadn't had a strong urge to drink in those first couple of weeks, I also recognized that I needed help on that particular issue because the drinking was going to kill me a lot faster than any of the other self-harm, self-harming behaviors that I might have been engaged in at that time. 
one day out of the blue, it was a Monday afternoon, and I found myself online looking for local groups for alcohol recovery. And there were lots of AA groups around, and I went to my first meeting, and I fell in love with the people that I met that night. I went to a small group near me here in Dallas, and the connection, Janet, that I was looking for was there. And the people were sharing stories just like mine. And I still wasn't so sure about some of the things they were saying, like the allergy or the God word, but I liked them well enough that I went back the next day and I continued to go through the 12-step program. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. But I think going back to when you walked into that first meeting, the first time you realize that there's other people in the same position, it's such a wonderful feeling, isn't it? You stop feeling like you're broken, there's something wrong with you. We've just got addicted to an addictive substance and and there is a way out. That's right. So yeah, that moment of connection is magic. There is that moment of hope. The connection, the ability and the, the resource to get out of my house where I did so much of my drinking, and to go and be around other people in a different physical location, and to have people who understood and had a lot of experience in sobriety that they wanted to share with me was just tremendous. If I had kept in that pattern of isolating and not changing what I was doing, my people, places, and things, I have no doubt I would have slipped back into going to work, coming home, opening the bottle of wine, inhaling the first few drinks and going into a blackout, pass out or run out situation. Yeah. Yeah. Isolation is the worst thing that we can do, isn't it? We've we've just got to push ourselves out of the comfort zone and, and connect with other people who understand us. It is. And it's so refreshing that there are so many places where we can connect. And I know uh, people who have been able to get sober on their own. Uh, That wasn't my story, obviously, or have gone to church Mm. or have found connections online. And so there's no monopoly. And one of the things that I always encourage newcomers or people who are curious about sobriety is go check out all these different resources. Absolutely. Find what works for you. Because what's working for me may not work for you, but there will be something out there for you if you really want to get Yeah, I say that to people too. You know, try different things. You can be a member of this one for a month, a member of this one for a month. There'll always be something for everybody and there's more and more out there. It's brilliant. So first year at AA, did that really put you on a different path? It did put me on a different path. I had so many firsts that first year. Before I had gotten involved in the recovery community, I was talking with my therapist at the time, and I was 
saying, well, how am I going to go to dinner without drinking? How am I going to date without drinking? How am I going to travel? How would I do anything? Because I drank every day. I drank for any occasion. How would you sit on a plane? Exactly. How would I do anything (laughs) in my life without drinking? And so slowly but surely, I experienced the firsts of going to dinner sober, having friends in sobriety that I could talk to and go out with and learn to socialize without drinking and to have that support system. And so gradually, I added experience by experience to my list of things I'd done sober. And I felt better physically. I had a better idea of who I was. And it just felt so much better. Everything was so much clearer. But those, those feelings, those things that I used to be running from, some of those were still present. That first year was great. Yeah. But I feel like in some ways I was so focused on getting to the year at times that I was clinging on a little bit. I didn't white knuckle it, but I also Hmm. really wanted to get to that first year. And then surprise, I reached a certain time, a certain milestone, and it's not that anything necessarily had changed except the date on the calendar. And so... I honestly have done much deeper work looking at myself and improving my self-esteem, my relationship with myself after that first year. The first year was tremendous, but I couldn't reach that milestone and then say, okay, I got a year. I'm good. That's not my experience. I had to. That's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. One of the things that I stopped doing when I got sober was I stopped dating because I had other patterns that were not aligned with my soul and with who I wanted to be. And I was looking at other experiences, other external objects, not to objectify men or people in general, but I thought, just like the shoes or the car, if I'm dating the right person, then that's going to help fix me. That'll make me feel better. If I have this job or that thing or I'm dating that person, that's going to fix me. And so just like with the alcohol, I had to start to put down those thoughts and beliefs and really focus on my sobriety for that first year. Because just going a full year without drinking was a huge change. So that was my primary focus that first year. Yeah. Yeah, I I see that first year as laying the foundation, really. And then we build on that. And I think it, it's like a springboard for our self-development then, isn't it? Because that's been a wonderful surprise for me personally, because I thought, well, obviously, you know, if I get sober, I'm going to have more energy and look better and feel better and my health will be better. But I, I never realized. To me, it's like a, a gift that keeps on giving, you know, every year something changes for the better and my life gets richer and happier and there's moments of real joy. And sobriety is such a gift and one of the tools that I was taught very early was to practice gratitude and to write down at least three things I was grateful for in the morning and to see those those gifts whereas Mm -hmm. I had viewed sobriety as some loss it's been a gift, oh, me too. especially being able to yeah. be present yeah. with people, yeah. uh, the people I care about, yeah. because I was always focused on when is the server coming by to bring the next drink. 
Should I order a double? Should I, you know, do I have enough wine at home? Am I going to have to stop at the store? There was so much going on in my mind related to alcohol and all that noise, thankfully, has cleared and I can be very present and focused on my friends and my family and my loved ones. And that's one of the biggest gifts to me out of sobriety. Yeah, there are so many gifts. And the thing is, I think, you know, when we're drinking and we we know that we've got to make a change, we think, oh, I'm going to lose so much. We don't realize we're going to gain so much. And the things that we do lose, blackouts, hangovers, (laughs) regrets. Random bruises that I can't explain. (laughs) Oh, had lots of those yeah I've got a bruise today and I'm thinking where did that come from because I've not been drinking but it just brought back that memory mm-hmm. we used to call those UDIs unidentified drinking incidents yes <laughs> give me top three benefits of sobriety please Lily your top three my top three are being present with others being able to truly focus on them and not worry about myself as much, being of service to others. I finally, truly embraced that little voice inside that had been saying, do something to give back, that had started up really strongly in 2011. It took me years. I wasn't able to really listen to and understand and embrace that voice until around 2019 when I started to work with other women in recovery and to be there for them on their journey. And that is the work I do today is so incredibly fulfilling. It fills up my soul. It fills me in a way that alcohol never could. And so that desire to be of service, that intrinsic value that has been there for such a long time, I've finally been able to honor that and to have such a more engaging, beautiful, and happy life. And so my career shift and just my internal shift is far and away the biggest, the biggest change. And that feeling of peace and calm, because yeah. Even though I've I've had some challenging experiences in sobriety, I lost a job. COVID, of course, was stressful for all of us. I've had my heart broken just a little bit in sobriety. I've had these experiences where not that I had a needed a reason to drink in the past, but I definitely would have been drinking about those, but today even Even if something hurts, even if I'm really feeling things deeply, it's okay. I can sit with that. I can reach out if I need to. And I don't have that constant yo-yo up and down feeling that I used to have. I can sit in things. I can move through things a little more gracefully. And it's just like the, the waves are a little calmer. There are little bumps, there are ups and downs, but I don't feel like I'm on a roller coaster anymore. And the community would be another. I think I've gone over three, but the connections, my family, (laughs) my chosen family of fellow 
recovery yeah. uh, and sobriety people is such a gift. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah, what, exactly what you were saying, Lily. Just because we're we're sober doesn't mean that our life is perfect. But I think we learn how to get how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, we don't feel we've got to chase away every little emotion with alcohol. We we deal with it. And I still get down sometimes, like I used to when I was drinking. And I think, oh, I need a, bo- a glass of bubbly to cheer myself up kind of thing. But now I think, oh, I feel a bit, I've got the blues today. But then I think, well, in a couple of days, I'll be fine. You know, you just go through it. And that's where our personal growth comes through, I think, dealing with, with tough times and situations because um, they say that your emotional maturity stalls if you're drinking a lot and I think there's a lot of truth in that I mean I often say I was 18 for a long time I'm not sure what age (laughs) I am finally growing up now (laughs) well and I love that we have to become more comfortable being uncomfortable and something that I tell people and they of course love it is if it doesn't challenge you it won't change you if I'm always in my comfort yeah, zone, yeah. I'm not growing. Yeah. And so exactly. those challenges really are big gifts if I choose to see them that way. So if someone's listening to this, Lily, and they are where we were <laughs> in our, our drinking days, and they're not happy and they know they've got to change, but they just don't know where to start and they feel completely overwhelmed and they, they dread the thought of losing their best friend alcohol, what would you say to encourage them and where should they start? Well, I would say that if they're listening to this podcast and having those thoughts, then there probably is a chance that putting down the drink would benefit them, at least to try it. I would say that this, as well as anything in life, really is one day at a time. All we really have is today. And so just trying to not drink for 24 hours, or maybe just one evening, is a great place to start. But most importantly, that person is not alone. I'm here, you're here, your community, Tribe Sober is here. There are so many people out there who want to help that individual. And so I would say reach out. Yeah, yeah. And I I say to people, even if you're still drinking, you know, just connect, listen and learn. And then you'll you'll start thinking, maybe I can do this. Look at all these other people doing this. Absolutely. Maybe I can too. I know a lot of people yeah. who reached out uh, the first time or, or came to meetings or visited groups who were drinking while on the meeting or drank before they yeah. walked into the in-person meeting, whatever it was. We don't care. We love you. We understand. Yeah, we've all mm-hmm. been there. <laughs> so let's talk about your coaching. What what made you decide to qualify as a coach? 
Looking back, I had been a coach for a long time. I just didn't recognize it. And I wasn't very aware of the coaching industry uh, until uh, the COVID era. But I had been working with clients in some sort of coaching capacity in my legal career to a certain extent. I had been coaching yoga students and uh, clients who I'd work with one-on-one on mindfulness and yoga and movement for years. And so when I got into sobriety and I became a sponsor and started working with other women in recovery and being there for them, all of those jobs, all of those responsibilities entailed some degree of coaching. And so I remember very distinctly my 40th birthday, everything in Dallas was iced over and I was at home on the sofa with my dogs and I was reflecting and thinking to myself, I want to be doing something different next year. Because at that point I was still pretty uh, involved in a law firm and I was still primarily working as an attorney And so I offered up to the universe a request to send me some guidance. And a week or two later, coaching, I'm not sure how it came to me, but I started really digging into it. And so I found a certification program and I added the official title and away I went. And I've, I've worked with people in recovery, but I've worked with a lot of non recovery, non-sober people as well, normal people, if you will, because we all have the same (laughs) concerns. You know, we have, we want to build our confidence or improve our love lives or uh, our well-being. And so it's, it's been such a fulfilling path and I wouldn't have gotten here if I hadn't been sober. And most recently I've added on a certification for relationship coaching, because that's some place where I've been doing a lot of deep work with my own coaches over the past couple of years and just looking at how I relate to to people in my life, not just romantic relationships, mm-hmm. although those are important yeah. too. And it's been really incredible to see the universe has been sending me a lot of clients who are just interested in their relationships and their patterns and changing those. Fantastic. So how can people find out more about you and your coaching? You've got a, a website, haven't you? I've had a look at that. Remind me what it's My called. website is myinternalweather.com. That's right. And you can email me directly, lily, L-I-L-Y, at myinternalweather.com. And I have some uh, sober dating tips on there. I have some mindful eating tips. So it's a very holistic view and hopefully some resources that are helpful to people. Thank you so much, Lily. Let's pull out some key points. Lily discovered alcohol at a young age via the liquor cabinet of one of her friend's parents. It tasted disgusting, of course, but somehow she knew it would change the way that she felt. So she persevered and found ways to disguise that bitter taste of alcohol. As a shy teenager who wanted to be popular, 
Lily found that alcohol gave her the liquid courage that she needed. As the only child of older parents, she felt she had to be perfect. She had to do everything right. And she also felt that she had to be independent and not ask for help. These two beliefs led her to a feeling of loneliness, a feeling that continued as she grew older. The loneliness was a feeling that would last until she got into recovery and learnt how better to connect with people, when she finally learned that connection was the opposite of addiction. As a straight A student, Lily would worry about the possibility of getting a B. Her drive for perfectionism helped her to graduate, to get through law school and then get a highly paid job at a top firm. However, she was always chasing the next thing, the next box to be ticked. Buying a new car and more shoes, even though she didn't need either. She thought it would make her feel better, which it did, but only for a very short time. She was using this same strategy with alcohol, drinking more and more in the hope that it would make her feel better. But of course, as it's a depressant, it only made her feel worse. Like many of us, Lily was under the illusion that alcohol was glamorous and fun and cool. And I guess it was, until one day it wasn't. As early as five years into her legal career, Lily started to sense a misalignment. She wasn't fulfilled in her job and she thought that the alcohol would help to ease this uncomfortable feeling. She took a year's sabbatical and got her yoga teaching qualification. She then taught full-time for a while, which she really enjoyed. Yoga had helped her to cope with her stress and she loved the fact that she was able to share that with her students. But the bills were still coming in and Lily felt under financial strain, so she returned to practising law. She was using wine at the end of the day to self-medicate her stress and eventually she could feel it affecting her work performance. Some days she struggled to get to work as she was battling a severe hangover. But like many of us, Lily became an expert in disguising her drinking problem. So much so that former colleagues and friends were surprised to hear she's now in recovery. Like many of us, she did a lot of her drinking alone, on the sofa, at home. Things began to change for Lily in January 2018. She tried to take a break for dry January, but found she couldn't notch up more than a few alcohol-free days. And of course, she always intended to go back to drinking at the end of January. Doing a challenge like dry January is when a lot of us realise for the first time that we've become dependent. So when you join Tribe Sober, the first thing we do is put you on a 30-day alcohol-free challenge so that we can help you to assess your level of dependence and what kind of help you need from us. Short challenges are great to test your dependence, but the true benefits of sobriety don't come in until you've been alcohol-free for a few months, so it's important to push through and keep going. Like most of us, Lily tried to moderate and she imposed some rules around her drinking. But of course, after two or three drinks, there was no off switch. Lily finally ended her drinking career in 2018, 
finishing it off with a few months of intentional heavy drinking before accepting that she would have to make the change. She had a series of rock bottoms, including a ladies' wine tasting trip and a weekend drinking alone in her apartment. She also felt mortified when she saw several recordings on a security camera of her arriving home very late at night, and obviously the worst for wear. As she woke up hungover every morning, she finally accepted that she had to get some help. So she took some time off work and started being honest about the problem. Honest with a friend, with a doctor and with her therapist. And of course the key to change is honesty and so many of us spend so many years in denial. We have to accept to ourselves that we have a problem and then reach out for help. This is actually the most difficult part of the whole journey. And once we've reached out and found some help, then the journey can begin. So if you're still procrastinating about getting some help, then please do it today. Reach out to tribesober.com and we'll help you to get started on this life-changing journey. Just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. As Lily said, we have to be ready to keep an open mind and try something different. She'd been resistant to the idea of AA, but she managed to find a small group that she loved. She found the connection she'd been looking for, people who were sharing stories just like hers. That's such a special moment, the moment we realise we're not alone in this. Lily's experience shows the importance of keeping an open mind and we agreed on the strategy to keep trying different groups until you find something that resonates. She talked about the importance of sober firsts and how she tackled them gradually during her first year of sobriety. She also stopped dating as she wanted to focus on herself rather than looking for a partner to make her feel good. As she said, Going a year without drinking was a huge change for her, so it had to be her primary focus. And at Tribe Sober, we advise people to throw the book at their sobriety and treat it as a major project for that first year. So Lily's first year was spent notching up sober firsts, appreciating the benefits of sobriety as they came in. But it was only in year two that she started to do the deeper work. We agreed that year one is just the beginning of the journey and that there is so much more to recovery than not drinking. Take a listen to Tribe Sober Podcast episode 61 from September 2021 and you'll hear a rehab doctor explaining that for every year we drank, we should allow a month of recovery. So if, like me, you were drinking for decades, your recovery will not be quick but you will be noticing more and more benefits of sobriety as the months pass. Lily and I both agreed that life doesn't become perfect when we get sober, but we'll be better able to cope with the challenges. Personal growth comes from dealing with difficulties. And as Lily said, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. These days, Lily is a life coach, a sobriety coach and a relationship coach. You can connect with her on myinternalweather.com, which is her website, or you can email her, lily at myinternalweather.com. So let me end with a message from one of our chat rooms. 
from Ellen in the US. Ellen is singing the praises of my colleague Sue. I do enjoy the Zooms immensely. So many helpful tips, book recommendations and just general support with people who understand each other. Sue has an incredible memory for details and she just pulls up so many suggestions on how to use the Tribe Sober website, book suggestions, past podcasts. She's such a good host and is always willing to share her own personal journey. Checking in with one another is so nice and you can always just hang, listen and not talk at all. I'm going to try and attend more Monday night US Zooms as well. It's so good to have alternative time slots available. Give it a try if you haven't yet. So thank you, Ellen, and well done. And well done for passing that six-month milestone. It's been a joy to add you to our six-months-plus WhatsApp group. So if you'd like to join Tribe Sober and access our regular Zoom chats, then just go to tribesober.com and hit Join Our Tribe. That's it from me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.